Welcome to Conservation Federation, Episode 3. I'm your host, Brandon Butler, and today I'm joined by Mark Van Patten. We're coming to you from Montauk State Park, headwaters of the Current River, where Mr. Van Patten is now making his home. Mark, what's it like living down here in God's country? I'll tell you what, I think God's country pretty well describes it. It's an amazing, beautiful place to be. Moved down here full-time now? Yes, yes, about a little acreage down here, just downstream from Acres Ferry on the Current River, and I tell you what, it's it's heaven on earth. Left the big metropolis of Jefferson City behind. Yes, I did. <laughs> That's for sure. Those of you not familiar with the name Mark Van Patten, Mark was a longtime employee of the Department of Conservation, very instrumental in the creation of the stream teams here in the state, as well as one of the premier fly fishermen we have in Missouri today. An expert tire hosted a longtime TV show called The Tying Bench and is now enjoying a, a semi retirement in the Ozark Mountains around the headwaters of the Current River where he's teaching fly tying classes. How's that going, Mark? It's going great. Uh, we've held a few classes already in, in the city of Salem, the big metropolis of Salem, <laughs> Missouri. And uh, we're getting prepped for our first fly tying class here with the lodge on March 25th. And then we've got a whole series of classes coming up throughout the year. So you're teaching at Montauk. You're also teaching at Echo Bluff. Well, yes. And so far we haven't had a class there, but we're working on that. And Salem as well. And Salem as well at Jay Cook's Fly Rod. That's the new fly shop there in Salem. Yep, brand new. This is the one and only fly shop there in Salem, too. Who are those guys? Jerry Cook is a proprietor of that store and uh, he's very supportive of the classes. We've had, like I said, we've had a few already, and, and uh, we've had some young beginners really get eat up and hooked on the sport. Before we get too far along with where you are today and what you're up to, give us a little bit of your background, a little, little history on how you became this fly fishing guru of Missouri. Well, I've been fly fishing since I was 12 years old, and I'm 63, I'll be 64 coming up pretty quick, so a long time. And my grandparents raised me here in the Ozarks, and they were purist fly fishers. So they raised me with a fly rod in my hand. In fact, I didn't even know that there was any other kind of fishing rod until I was in my 20s, just about, and, and uh, never did acquire a, a skill at any of those other rods. I, I stick with the fly rod and, and really enjoy it. I fish all species, all waters with a fly rod. My philosophy is... If if it eats anything bigger than plankton, I can probably catch it on a fly. Anyhow, just just really got into it and really enjoy it. And you know, the fly fishing also led me to carrying about rivers and streams. And that's what got me involved with starting the very first stream team back in 1989. And now there's almost 5,400 teams, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 volunteers going through that program annually. And that's just, it's just amazing what they do. We're going to have to break down your accomplishments in, in segments of sort here. But to go back to what you were just talking about on the fly fishing and catching any species, you know, I feel the same way, but I think a lot of Midwesterners lack that understanding. So growing up myself in Indiana, fly fishing just wasn't wasn't on the radar. For someone who fished very seriously and very often with my grandfather, mostly for panfish, but then my uncles were hardcore bass fishermen. It was just like fly fishing until the movie came out, until a river runs through it came out. Just seemed like a foreign thing. And after graduating from college, I, I wanted to go to fly fishing country and ended up in Colorado and then spent a bunch of time in Montana, four years, and really fished these incredible fly fishing destination waters. After getting married and having a couple of babies all in the course of a few years, moved back to Indiana and really just thought, 
fly fishing is over for me. You know, now what am I going to do? But discovered the smallmouth bass and, and some of the freshwater species, uh, musky, northern pike, and learned that fly fishing truly is universal. It's not just mountains and trout. And then thankfully ended up here in Missouri uh, a little over seven years ago. And what an unbelievable state for bringing together the warm water species and the cold water species. We have trout streams here in Missouri, and you and I have talked about this a number of times, that we would put up against any trout fishing streams in America, as well as the smallmouth bass streams. For your money, where are you spending time on trout water? Well, honestly, I've fished all over the United States pretty well, and I have yet to find waters that I care more about and enjoy fishing more than I do the current river right here in Missouri Ozarks. It's That's why I retired here, because I love this water. Now, a close second to that would be the North Fork of the White, again, right here in Missouri. So you don't have to travel far to have premier trout fishing opportunities. And like you mentioned, oh my gosh, smallmouth bass, until you get a a nice smallmouth bass on the end of your fly line, you have not experienced life. <laughs> yeah, pound for pound. Yeah, that, few nothing fight. fights like right. a smallmouth. And, and hey, get a nice nine-inch bluegill on a fly rod in, in your farm ponds. and you got a handful of fish. Those little disc-shaped bodies of theirs, they know how to use them, and they know how to give you a good fight. I was tell my hunting buddies that fly fishing is like bow hunting and compared to spin fishing which is more like rifle hunting it's they're both great both enjoyable for their own way but there's just something more intrinsically involved in in fly fishing you know i really need to share this with you brandon this this is i think fascinating information that most people have no idea about but the first record of fly fishing actually dates back to ancient macedonia There was a a historian traveling through ancient Macedonia and noted that the locals were fishing for speckled fish, which we assume are probably trout, with hooks adorned with colorful feather and fur. And that's what he wrote in his book. We're talking thousands of years ago. People were fly fishing with artificial flies they tied themselves. And the first, as a matter of fact, the very first book ever written, Ladies Take Note Here, was written by a woman named Julianne Berner. And she she was a, a nun in a convent and an avid fly angler. Later on, because uh, at that time, writings by women were not widely accepted, it was pretty well, it just didn't really go very far. But then in about another hundred years, Isaac Walton wrote The Complete Angler. And, of course, then it became the big hit. So, anyhow, the sport has been around a long time, very long time. In fact, some of the patterns that we still fish today are hundreds and hundreds of years old, been around a long, long time. And it really seems to have a pretty bright future as well. For a sport that had been labeled so affluent for so many years, you're really starting to see a shift in fly fishing. And there's kind of this younger, hipper movement to it, almost synonymous with the snowboarders and and extreme sports youngsters across the country. And, And that's great that it's actually bringing in somewhat of a vibrance and the old traditionalists are making way for the new young bucks you see some of the same in golf as well you know with the the young stars in golf wearing kind of the crazy clothing and and bringing a new energy to it but everyone respects the fisheries and respects the habitat so it's good to see the evolution don't you think i agree and you know it's it's interesting to observe with the younger generation the millennials coming along and getting so involved with fly fishing and i think one of the reasons is such you can sit on the bank and wait for a fish to come by and take your lure your 
bait or whatever, or you can hunt that fish. You can learn the water. You can learn where they hang out, a little bit about the entomology, figure out how to present your fly in such a way to imitate that real insect. It's that challenge that goes beyond just sitting there. And today's generation is a lot more hyper than I was when I was younger. And they need to be doing stuff. They don't want to just be sitting on that bank. This is a lifelong learning sport that offers so many different challenges from the art of the cast to the learning the entomology to the fish behavior, understanding the stream and the hydrology and how to utilize your line on on different cross currents and so on. Uh, That challenge is what I think attracts a lot of these younger people. I tell people, again, another golf analogy that fly fishing is a lot like golf. If you go out the first time and you hack the ball around and you think this is the worst thing ever and you hang up your golf club, then so be it. But if you go out and you scrub through the first round and you're like, you know, what, that was pretty fun and I'd like to try to get better. Well, that evolution of better is endless, right? And it's the same with fly fishing. You'll go out the first time and just flop your line around on the water, think you're doing something. You may or may not catch a fish. If you do, it was probably luck. (laughs) But if you enjoyed it, that's step one. And by step 2,252, you might finally be at a respectable level where you feel like you're a fly fisherman. And I'll never forget, for me, it was when I moved into Colorado and I went up to these lakes just south of Estes Park by Ward, Colorado. And I was watching a guy fly fish. And here I am with my scientific angler, beginner's combo, just hacking at the water. And this guy just looked like, you know, Fred Astaire. I mean, so graceful and every cast was perfect. And I thought, you know, I'll never get to that point but eventually you do with well, enough and, time and, and repetition and i've watched you fish with a fly rod brandon and you do a fine job <laughs> through a nice line but it takes a while yeah, it takes it a does. while it's it a, it's a it takes a while to hit a ball 200 yards down the center of a fairway too but even once you can do that then you want to start tweaking your game and it's the same thing with fly fishing like you said mending your line and then yeah. matching the hatch and then getting into tying and you know to be honest tying is something that i just haven't found the time to get fully into um i have all the equipment i tie some basics but i mean you're a true fly tying artist and how does that evolution take place well it started out with me tying some ungodly looking things when i was 12 years old and uh, finally learning to tie traditional patterns my grandfather taught me and discovering what works and what didn't and just doing a lot of it. I remember one year there was a retailer that asked me to tie flies for them and I tied 1,500 dozen flies in a year and that almost ruined me on fly tying. Then it became a job. After that, I decided I would never sell my flies again. I donate them. I trade for you know various things, but I uh, I don't sell flies because I wanted to stay in art form and something I enjoy doing. But you have to do it a lot. You can take a class. And that'll get you started. But it's like fly fishing. What I tell my students, whether it's fly tying or fly fishing, is this. In fly fishing, if you really want to get good, there's two things you have to do. One, you have to fish. And two, you have to leave all those other fishing poles at home. And the same thing with fly tying. If you want to get good at it, you got to tie. And you got to tie a lot. If you tie six flies, your sixth one will probably be your best one, which tells you this. Keep tying and you'll get better and better. So I feel like if I was to go to any farm pond or reservoir in Missouri to catch a fish, probably a largemouth bass, and I had a spinnerbait, a Texas rigged rubber worm, and a floating Rapala minnow, 
I could catch fish. But I carry around this tackle box full of so many different ungodly lures. What are the three flies? So I just said spinnerbait, Texas rig worm, floating rapala minnow. I could go anywhere. What are three flies? If you had those three flies in your pocket and you were going to go fish any of these rivers, there's a good chance you'd catch some. For bass or for trout? For trout. For trout. trout. Okay. The three flies I would never leave home without. Number one is a renegade dry fly. Love that fly. Number two, Alcare caddis dry fly. And number three, a nymph, probably either a pheasant tail nymph or a gold ribbed hare's ear nymph. Those three flies are all you need. And you'll probably catch fish. And you'll catch fish, yeah. Um, and then there's a dirty dozen that I like to recommend, but those three are the are the top three. You see so many people coming into the trout parks trying to figure out what fly to use for the first time. Here at Montauk, the fishing's a little bit different, a little more western, I would say. It resembles more of an actual free-flowing river than in some of the other trout parks. Somebody that's coming down here for the first time wants to try to fly fish, hasn't done it before, isn't going to take lessons with you, just wants to show up and, and go at it. What do they need to get started in this sport? Well, of course, you need a good fly rod. Now, that's the one tool you really don't want to scrimp on because that fly rod does a lot of things. First of all, it takes your line and your fly and presents it to the fish for you. Then when the fish takes your fly, it allows you to set the hook. And once the hook is set, that rod is what you use to bring that fish to hand. So you don't scrimp on a good fly rod. The real you don't have to spend so much on that. All it does basically is hold line, and sometimes you use it with bigger fish for fighting the fish. But mostly you got to get a good fly rod. Fly rod, line, and reel. You need a leader and some tippet material, which the tippet material is just at the very end of the leader that's fine where you tie your fly on. The flies you need, I would recommend Crackleback, Renegade, Elk Hair Caddis. You're going to need a pheasant tail nymph. And maybe a gold ribbed hair's, hair's ear, and then a midge of some kind. A zebra midge is always good by their name. You can tell it's a really tiny little fly. If you have those flies in size 16 or smaller, then you're going to be pretty well equipped with what you need. Now, if you like to sight fish, and, and I'm not a real proponent of this, but the glow ball egg patterns are pretty popular with a lot of beginners because they can see the fly in the water and then they can see the fish take the fly. A woolly booger in white or a light color that you can see in the water also is something you can see. You can see the fish take it. So if you're just beginning, it's kind of important to be able to see that happening to be able to know when to set your hook. Eventually, you you establish a nice uh, appreciation for the movement in the water and flash of silver you see when they open their mouth or whatever, and you know to set the hook. But starting out, a nice bright colored glow ball or egg pattern, they call it, made out of yarn or a white woolly booger are two Pretty good flies for beginning, and they work here. Now, the days and the light and the, uh, of the sky and the watercolor will vary, so you might have to change the color to be, you know, see what the fish are hitting on. They may be hitting on pink today. They may be hitting on some sort of orange or white tomorrow, you know, so you need to, you need to kind of gauge that based on asking other, everybody, hey, what, what are you catching them on? You mentioned dry flies and nymphs for the basic beginners. Explain the difference between what a dry fly is and a nymph is. Okay, understanding, first of all, they represent insects. And the nymph is the nymphal stage of an aquatic insect. What I mean by nymphal stage is it's living underwater. Take the the butterfly, for example. The butterfly comes from a chrysalis that comes from a caterpillar. 
that came from eggs. Well, some of these insects don't go through a complete metamorphosis. The, the, the adult insect lays her egg, and a little nymph hatches out. That nymph sheds its skin a few times and gets bigger and bigger, and then finally, at some point, decides to go to the surface, and its exoskeleton cracks open, and a winged flying insect comes out. So that's the entomology. Well, the nymph fly is a fly you would fish underwater because it's representing that, that insect before it becomes a flying adult. And then the dry fly represents that adult, that flying insect, as it sits on the water preparing to either lay eggs again or maybe it just came out of that exoskeleton and it's letting its wings dry and getting ready to fly off for the first time. So dry fly sits on the surface of the water, the nymph sinks and, and is on the bottom. And for a beginner, it's the dry fly fishing that you hear all the romance about. That's where you can actually watch your fly kind of representing an insect that landed on the water or is, like you said, emerging. And you can see that trout come up and slurp that fly down. And that's, you that know, adrenaline rush yeah, right that's there. the moment. <laughs> that's the moment that's that it. we're all looking for. But again, the nymph fishing, the underwater fishing is often as successful or even more so. Well, it, actually more so. And here's why. The majority of the feeding that a trout does throughout a year is underwater. Because those nymphs live for about a year underwater. But as an adult, they just, they're very short-lived. Uh, mayflies, for example, which are the more common, kind of the icon dry fly, some of them only live for a few hours. So the bulk of the feeding goes on down under the water. The dry fly hatch, when we see a hatch coming off and we get the opportunity to fish that hatch and, and have that excitement, is is not that common course different insects hatch at different times of the year so if you hit it right you can you can dry fly uh, fish all year but not every day so you need to be able to utilize skills for both top water fishing and underneath now a lot of people will use what they call a strike indicator which is a glorified name for a bobber <laughs> it's a tiny little thing that you put on your on your line that allows you to see a take underwater so if you can't see the fly because it just disappears in the water you can use that indicator and if it stops or darts or does anything but go with the flow then you just set your hook and hopefully there's a fish so jim washbaugh is the author of the guide to fly fish in the trout parks tells me that the strike indicator was invented at bennett spring do you know anything about the history of that you know, I've heard that, and if Jim says it, it's got to be true. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd like to learn more about that, but it is funny. It's an indicator, not yeah, a bobber, because it's bobber. nothing but a little bobber. Yeah, you know, fly fishermen back in the, in the in the day were a little bit snobbish, and they were hesitant to name theirs a bobber. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got the whole fly fishing culture, but then kind of the subcultures exist. There's the, the casters, the expert casters certified through the Federation of Fly Fishers. And then the tying is a whole nother subculture. I mean, there's guys that tie flies that never go fly fishing. And I mean, just the art form of it all. So how did, how did you become so involved in tying and then how did the tying bench come to be and and what was that run like being on tv for all those years you know that's a good question and i've asked myself that a few times how how did i get to that level uh, you know i really don't know i i tied a lot i did some demonstration fly tying at the uh, the conferences for the fly fishers the southern council uh, federation of fly fishers for a number of years and and was an officer and and, and i guess at that time, I was, you know, building a reputation as a tire. But I'm going to be honest with you, Brandon. I am not the best fly tire. 
I'm best at teaching others to tie flies. I really enjoy that. There are fly tires out there that are absolute artists. They create unbelievable stuff. Not something you'd fish with. It's something you put in a frame and hang on your wall. What I tie are things you fish with. And, of course, I have two boxes. I'll have one box. It's the flies I fish with because the fish aren't really picky. And then I have the box of flies that my buddies can see. Those are the ones that turned out real well, you know. <laughs> but I don't know. I just I, I tied a lot. And, and, and because of that and, and was teaching classes, a producer came to me one day and said, hey, how would you like to do a show on PBS? I've always wanted to market a show like that on PBS. And I said, no. And finally, he talked me into it after about two years of bugging me. And we we did a pilot, and it turned out that it was something people really wanted to see. It's uh, not necessarily to learn to tie flies, but they were just fascinated by the process of tying a fly. But then a lot of people did come on board and, and started watching the show to learn and tie their own. And where did that show air? It aired all over United States pretty well. It was nationally syndicated. It only aired in Missouri on KMOS out of Warrensburg, but it quickly went to, I don't know, 20-some states. It was in New York and Washington State. It was in uh, Kansas and uh, Louisiana. It's still on in Louisiana, by the way, three days a week down there. We did 200 episodes over 13 seasons before I decided I was done and wanted to retire from it. That kind of tells people how many flies there are to tie. Yeah, there's, yeah. I mean, you did more than one fly per episode, 200 episodes, Yeah, we did two 13 flies per seasons. show. Yeah. yeah, so it's endless. Just like oh, yeah. the skills of fly fishing are I, endless. There's, I've got books that are like 1,600 patterns of the Umqua fly merchants, you know, and, and oh, yeah. So once you get into this obsession, which it can become. Oh, know, certainly. There's just no end to the avenues you can go and you think about this too originally when this all started out they were tying flies with feather and fur well now in recent years we've got all these great synthetics that act like feathers and fur but are more durable easier to access the idea of getting the underbelly fur of a female fox for a specific fly pattern which believe me there is a fly pattern that calls for that it's actually the underbelly urine stained fur of a female fox for the Hendrickson, that's hard to come by. So somebody came up with synthetics that you know duplicate that, and that's made things a lot easier. But be, with the advent of synthetics came new patterns, and all new patterns completely deviating from what you know was traditional. We see stuff now. We fish for tarpon, for example. You're not going to tie a tarpon fly on a size 16 trout hook. This has to be tied on a stainless steel saltwater hook that with materials that can take the kind of abuse that a tarpon with a lot of teeth can handle. I love to go salmon fishing for sockeye up in Alaska. Can't use the same materials as you do for trout. A lot bigger fish, a lot more aggressive. So anyhow, it's, it's, uh, it's evolved. As it continues to evolve, where do the traditionalists somewhat draw the line? You're starting to see flies that almost look like lures. A spinner on a fly, a, a lead head on an egg. Is that a jig or is that a fly? I know it's a gray area around the border, but where's the border on what's a fly and what's not a fly? Well, there is a definition of a fly for the state of Missouri, by the way. And that's anything that you can tie to a hook that isn't uh, soft plastic. Soft plastic like they make plastic worms out of. Their rubbers and latexes are allowable because you can actually attach them to a hook. But soft plastics, if you tried to tie a, a rubber worm, for example, to a hook, the thread would slice right through it. 
Whereas with the rubbers and latexes, you can actually fasten it on there. And the reason is the soft plastics are easily bit off and then don't digest and the mortality rate begin, you know, is higher. So that's why they define it that way. Now, again, that's a, that's a pretty open, wide open definition as to what is a fly and what isn't a fly in the traditionalist manner. How I look at a fly and how someone else looks at a fly are two different things. A lot of people are always looking for that magic bullet. So they're always experimenting with this, that, or the other. And that's fine to each his own. And some of us are more traditional. We try to keep our flies more traditional in pattern and style. We may change color. We may change, and we may use some synthetics, but we try to use some of those old standards for dry fly patterns and so on. That's to each his own. I think that's also representative of how different our waters are here. To try to circle back a little bit from the tying to the fishing, we have just so many incredible resources in Missouri that nationally I think people just overlook. You hear so much about some of the New England states and, of course, the western waters. But you can go out to the Bighorn in Montana and fish this famed stretch of water. And any day in the summer, it almost looks like opening day at a trout park. I mean, people have this misconception that they're going out to the wilderness and fishing. But it's it's so filled with guide trips and people coming down to fish in their own boats that there's times on those western rivers it looks like bumper boats. I tell you, that's that's one of the reasons why I prefer fishing my home waters. It's a it's a well kept secret. Now everybody's going out west, and we've got our wonderful blue ribbon waters right here, and many times we got them to ourselves. I kind of like keeping it that way. Too. Yeah. And I don't think we're in any danger of becoming the frying pan in Colorado or the no. Henry's Fork in Idaho anytime soon. But what's neat is it's almost like we have these training grounds in the trout parks. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the trout parks, we have four parks in Missouri. Three of them are state parks, Montauk, Bennett Spring, and Roaring River. And then St. James has the Merrimack Park, but it's actually owned by the James Foundation. But each of those four parks have a program where the Department of Conservation stocks trout in the water every day based on the number of people that fished the day before. So when you show up to these parks to fish, there's going to be fresh fish. And, and the chances of you catching something are, are pretty likely, especially if you start early when they, they were in the hatchery yesterday and they're, they're you know, hungry. They're hungry. Yeah. So it's, it's an amazing training ground for people who can then take what skills they've developed as far as actually catching fish and move out to the more wild and scenic areas that we have, like the North Fork and the 11 Point, the Upper Current, so many beautiful smaller streams that will have to remain nameless for now. But (laughs) but the ones that we just named, you know, those aren't secrets. And same with Taney Como. We've got a true tailwater fishery below the dam with a chance to catch a world record, legitimate chance to catch a world record fish. And people know about the White River down Arkansas, and they know about, of course, the western Madison, Bighorn, Big Hole, Colorado frying pan. But you take somebody outside of the state of Missouri and ask them about the Upper Current River, and they're probably... They don't know about Probably it. Probably clueless. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to talk about the training grounds. I wrote an article for the Missouri Conservationist magazine. Uh, it was out last fall, I believe. And it was about just that. It was about people who have fished those parks their whole life. 
and never really went out beyond that. They get confident in their ability to catch fish there, and they know they can go there, catch fish, and have a great time, social event with their friends and family. And they don't even think about going outside of the park. First of all, they don't even realize that there is fishing outside the park because that's all they've ever done. So the idea of the article was, hey, you've honed these skills all these years. Now let's let's move on to other opportunities for trout fishing that you maybe haven't thought about before. You know, go out to the, our blue ribbon streams and our red ribbon streams out throughout the state. It was amazing to me the number of people who did not realize that there are trout in the streams below the parks. They thought all the trout were contained right there within those boundaries. Like there was a dam. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> no trout shall pass beyond this point. No. Scott Geralt and I, Scott's a, a guy from Columbia who works at the university and is very instrumental in Midmo Trout Unlimited, which I'm a member of. We floated the Niangua from above Bennett Spring, just down past the spring branch and a little ways on down the river. And we easily had 50 fish in the boat, an easy day's float. And I don't know where else you go in the country and top that. Yeah. I mean, we had some good fish. Most of them were some learned size, you know, you're 12 to 14 inches, but there's some great fly fishing to be had here in Missouri. And I always feel like I kind of got to defend the parks. Like there was just this blog post came out of Hatch Magazine. And, oh, and, yes, I read that. You know, and I actually talked to the guy. Like it got back to him that I was upset. And he kudos to him for saying, give me a call. And we talked. And this guy from Pennsylvania who's never experienced it and just looked at the videos and thought how ungodly that looked. But I told him, man, that's a tradition that goes beyond fishing. Right? All he has so to these, do is take a look at the, at the beaver kill at oh, on yeah. opening and, day. Yeah. You know? And the frying pan, you know, outside yeah. of Aspen, Colorado, any day in the summer. Like, you wait until a spot opens up. Then you move in as soon as somebody moved out. And there's somebody 50 yards to you. And I honestly feel like in those situations out west, there's – there is a level of snobbery and there is a level of like my water here at the opener and days, even crowded days beyond the opener. We know what we're doing. Oh yeah. Like, you know what you're getting into. Like, but what's so cool about it? And I've written this many times and talked about it till I'm blue in the face is like, you don't know if that person next to you is a Democrat or a Republican or, and it doesn't matter or rich or poor or, yeah. you know, if they like the Cardinals or the Cubs, like, and nobody cares. Like everybody there is there because they like to fish they appreciate the fact that every other person there likes to fish and it's just this like coming together of sporting culture and for one day and there's barrels burning fires and people serving coffee and kids squealing with excitement from catching fish and adults too you know and oh, yeah. you tangle your line with somebody and nobody gets mad like it's a special they expect it it's just, yeah it's yeah. this like it it's so cool it's hard to to find the people that haven't experienced it and are too closed-minded to like wrap the whole thought process around the fact that it's so much more than fishing you know i i stopped going to opening day when i was in my mid-20s to fish but i would go every year just enjoy the social event. There were people that I would see there once a year at opener. 
that had become good friends over the years. I'd watch them fish for a while, see them catch their fish. About 10 o'clock, we'd go up to the lodge and have breakfast, you know, uh, a late breakfast. And then they'd go back out and fish, and I'd walk up and down the banks taking pictures. And, and it was really a, a, a wonderful time, you know, with old friends that, that I had met there. And we had that camaraderie. Of course, I was always handing out flies and giving instructions on proper casting techniques. But anyhow, there's that. You know, there's just the whole social thing going on, people having a grand time. So, yeah, I'm glad you had the opportunity to set the guy straight. This year, you know, for the last four years, I guess, I've gone with the governor to the opening day. And this year was the first with Governor Greitens. So it was great to see him enjoying the trout opener at Bennett Spring. Did he fish? I don't think he did. He he had a busy day. You know, that was right after the Perryville tornadoes. And there was a big job announcement in Columbia. So kudos to him for understanding how important the opener is and and making time to come down and, and be there. But, you know, when he hits the ground, it's kind of like celebrity status and everybody wants to talk to the governor. I look back and, and just kind of behind him a little bit, there's Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. So I went over and talked to him just one-on-one for 10 minutes. And it was so cool listening to him talk about how much it meant to him. Here's a guy who's one of our leading statewide politicians. And of course, his family's got a history of being in power positions. But there's a guy who, from all of the incredible experiences he had with his father and growing up in Missouri, the trout opener really meant something to him. Like you could see in his eyes, like he wasn't there to have his picture taken or anything like that. He was there to fish and it was because he, he loved it. So it's like, no matter who you are in Missouri, it's part of our like culture and tradition of fishing. And it, it really kicks the year off. Well, absolutely. So my girls got kayaks for Christmas and they've got little pink fly rods and I'm trying to get them schooled up on fly fishing, but also on stream teaming. So we've done it a few different times and and trying to teach, you know, the girls the importance of stewardship and conservation through trash collection. But then I tell them about my friend Mark Van Patten, who helped start this whole stream team program that's become one of the leading conservation programs ever created, I think, probably in the country. I mean, how did it come to be and grow to over 5,000 stream teams today? You know, it's interesting. At that time, I was living in uh, the Waynesville area, and there's a Ruby Doo Creek right there in in the uh, community. In fact, it runs right through town. And they stocked trout in there. Plus, there was some natural reproduction going on in that stream because of a big spring right there in town. And it flows on down for about a mile and a half into the Gasconade River. Well, I like to fly fish that stream. And I tell you, honestly, I got really tired of losing my flies on mattresses and shopping carts and things in the river. And one day, a friend of mine who was, I think he was the chairman of the Rivers and Streams Committee of the Conservation Federation of Missouri at that time, Marty King, also a fly fisherman, had stopped by to see me. And he said, you know, I just came out of a meeting with the Department of Conservation. And we've been talking about starting a kind of an adoptive stream program. Program, and I knew that you'd been complaining about the trash and trying to pick some of it up on your own. He said, take a look at this brochure and tell me what you think of this idea. And I said, well, okay, set it down on the table. Let's go fish. So we went and fished. Well, I forgot about it. About a month later, I found that brochure and I looked at it and I said, man, this is a great idea. But what did Marty want me to do with this? Oh, well, I'll fill it out and send it in. Well, it turned out that was the first application they got. They weren't really prepared for the program to get going, but they decided once that brochure came in, they might as well start it. 
And so within a year, with really no advertising at all, over 125 teams signed up. We organized a cleanup fairly quickly and invited the governor to come. And at that time, John Ashcroft was the governor. And he. It, this turned out to be a huge, huge success. He came. We had over 200 people show up. And it all started with this little fly fishing club of mine of five people. And we just thought, well, think big, you know. So we we invited the governor and the media and everybody. And in one day, we pulled 17.7 tons of trash out of a mile and a half of stream. And John Ashcroft actually got in the river wearing shorts and T-shirt and tennis shoes and pulled tires and trash out of that stream right beside us. At the end of the day, he served us all ice cream. We had a big barbecue and refreshments were served and a great time was had by all as they say and now you can't hardly find a stretch of stream that doesn't have a stream team i mean no there's stream team in every county in the state and they're over overlapping so the conservation leadership corps which is our youth program at cfm we started a current river stream team last year and it was great that there was so little trash to pick up yeah we're really seeing the difference yeah on one hand it was like okay there's a can and everybody would race for it to see who could get it but you know it's wonderful to see the absolute difference that has been made because of this program and you know just how clean our riverways are because of volunteers and it goes all the way back to member number one yeah yeah, yeah. That was a that was a wonderful time in the history of, of string team program. Getting things going is exciting and new. And it's like hard to explain. Like people listening right now, for for me to tell you, like it sounds like I'm blowing political smoke at you, but it's like fun. Like it's incredibly yeah. fun to get these groups together and go out and pick up trash. And it's almost like a treasure hunt. It is a treasure hunt. In fact, we would we classified some of the things that we find as trash treasures because you would not believe some of the things we find in the rivers people lose them when the canoes flip over or they had something stored along a bank somewhere and a flood came along and took it out or they just simply thrown it in the river thinking okay this is gone everything from uh, well everything that you can possibly imagine (laughs) has been found in in rivers and streams around the state and you know what's really interesting brandon and as we're speaking right now I absolutely assure you, right now, there's a team somewhere picking up trash on the river. It, it's a daily, every day, every weekend, there's a cleanup, and sometimes yeah. even during the week for retirees. On on a weekend like this, there's multiple teams going all right now. All over the state. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and there's no way to even keep From track of all Donovan the Donovan to St. Louis to Kansas City to right. Joplin. So I, I, I'm going to have to look into Sinking Creek and see who the team is there on uh, Sinking Creek. There is a team on There's got to be one. Yeah. So, which, you know, Sinking Creek, Echo Bluff had a guy out to my property today uh, looking to do some land work and and put some concrete down for me to build my cabin on and he spent a year and a half working at Echo Bluff so it's I love hearing those stories you know here's a guy younger guy probably mid to late 20s lives in eminence and you know he saw Echo Bluff coming in as uh, economic boom to the community. You know, sure. he, he got a year and a half's worth of work out of it. Many people are still working there. You know, it's so frustrating to see all these bills filed against our state parks. Now, granted, it's only a few people writing these kind of bills, you know, trying to affect land purchases and, and public domain. But at the same time, how anybody could be so naive as to think that these state parks don't bring economic value to the regions that they're in. 
along with like the social and recreational values that it gives to citizens across the state and visitors to our state. And Echo Bluff sure got its fair share of negative spin, but I just think that was all political. I mean, the park is, it's so phenomenal, so beautiful. What a, a great representation of the Ozarks and to hear the locals that I've talked to, and that's by far most of them, you know, and I'm building my place within a mile of the park. They see it that way too. You know, oh, yeah. the canoe liveries are seeing an increase in in customers, and so why some of these politicians are trying to beat their chest and thump their table to say that this was a bad idea, when most of the locals that I discuss it with think it's an incredible investment in their local community. People who are looking for work are going to be supportive of anything that brings jobs to their community. And why a, a representative who supposedly represents those constituents in that area can't see the value of additional jobs being brought in this just amazes me. What Echo Bluffs has done already for the community, it goes way beyond just those few those people who have actual jobs there. But like you said, the canoe liveries are going to see an, an, an increase, which means the vendors who provide products to those canoe liveries that are sold are going to you know, see an increase in economics. That means the tax base is going to increase. I mean, all the way down the line, you're seeing nothing but a benefit to counties in this particular case that are not very wealthy counties. And that's one of the big arguments you hear is that it removes it from the property tax base. But that's so smoke and mirrors. Can, oh, yeah, you because know, the taxes generated outside of the actual park. Are, yeah, the, the, the rural property taxes are so low. But if that land was just sitting there, you know, being... Being vacant recreational land, the taxes collected off of that property tax would be so minimal compared to the sales taxes that are being collected. And property values that will go up around that area. Yes, substantially. People who want to own a piece of land close to Echo Bluffs, Mm -hmm. that property value just went up. Right. They come down and see what this area is all about. And hopefully it will be a positive influx of cash flow from many different angles. So, you know, you just hear – the negative side of it from a few of the local legislators. and you got to um, wonder what they're actually thinking about. Yeah. You know, it, what it, what like, motivates them? Where we're sitting here, we're in Montauk Lodge right now, and it looks like the chandelier was hung in about 1968. Yeah. And I think the curtains came, came with it. So everybody seems to have their favorite state park. We are so blessed in Missouri to have the state park system that we do. As a guy who grew up in state parks in Indiana thinking – Those are the greatest places in the world. Even though Indiana State Parks are very nice, the whole system just doesn't hold a candle to Missouri. I mean, I've always heard it argued that Missouri is one of the three or four best systems in America. And I I just can't imagine that's that's not true. that's why you go through the parking lot out here at the lodge and you see license plates from all over the country. Yeah, but it's, it's so ready to be drastically updated or just rebuilt. I mean, Montauk is just... My favorite state park oh, of all too, of them. I mean, far. you really feel like you're in this kind of wilderness setting. The campground's beautiful. The river's insanely beautiful and great to fish. But I just think this this lodge, it's time like to have a almost like a log chalet looking. But Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt should come in and design. He should. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe Theodore I've Roosevelt the fourth. Yeah. We could definitely do an upgrade here at Montauk and and make this. Is representative of how incredible this park is as yeah. it should be. 
Yeah, I agree, and I'm sure that the f- folks that work here would say the same thing. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful setting, most amazing place in this state. Just about it could use it. It could use an update. So it I got up this morning early to turn the tables from from fishing for a second, and scouted for turkeys. Yeah, and, you know, drove up the mountain. Like I love saying that. People in the Midwest probably are like, "What mountain? It's legitimately a mountain." Hey, our yeah. mountains are older than theirs. That's right. These are true mountains. And if you don't believe it, you know, go hike up one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I, I did cheat and took the four wheeler though, and you know, got to the top of the mountain, and I had a thermos of coffee, and just sat down on a fallen over tree with my back up next to another tree, and and waited for the goblin to start. And we're a month out from season. You know, we got youth season coming up on the eighth and ninth, but uh, we're a month out basically from the opener, and uh, five different gobbles within few hundred yards of where i was three gobbler- tell anybody where that is. yeah three gobblers <laughs> together on a ridge and then two kind of just off in the distance by themselves so it's you know it's just hard to explain to people what we've got going on down here last night my wife and i were sitting out on our front porch and we can look right down our valley to the river they can't see the water because there's some trees in the way, but it's just right down there. And there was a mist coming off of the, the river from the temperature change. And a barred owl started doing his thing. And then there was another barred owl. And it was not dark yet. And there was a gobble. as a late gobble getting ready to go on the roost. And then our turkey started answering back. And our old hen started, turkey hen started answering back. Before you knew it, there were gobbles everywhere. And the barred owls were, every time they would go off, they would set off a gobble fit. <laughs> So I guess some for some reason wild turkeys respond to the sound of those barred owls. But anyhow, it was a it was a concert and it was amazing when they start ringing in the hollers. Yeah, and you can't really tell where it's coming from because no, it's just right. bouncing up and down the valley. It's pretty amazing. But yeah. one thing you mentioned, your wife Regina. One of the things she turned me on to was the ice flowers. Oh yeah, like, I'd never seen yeah. an ice flower before and. I I just had a timber harvest done on my place, and I'm very happy with it. Jason Green, who's the manager of Pioneer Forest, was my consulting forester, and he hired a guy named Jimmy out of Bunker, and they just did a phenomenal job. No logging is beautiful, but they did as little damage to my land as possible. Took some trees out that were overdue to be harvested. You know, that renewable resource is, is going to, to good use, and I'll be able to use the money to hopefully get my cabin built by summer. But they stacked the logs on my ice flower field. Oh, no. <laughs> That's what I was worried about. So, like, when you come up come up the lane, there's just kind of this old fence that's just in choked in vines now, and there's just a, a driveway-wide swath next to that that runs maybe 100 yards. And in the right time, you know, that whole field is ice flowers. Yeah. They so I told amazing, Jimmy, I said, man, you did so good, but I should have put a sign up, like, be, you know, <laughs> beware of ice yeah, flowers. stay off my ice flower field. I'm just hoping that they'll come back. They'll come back. Yeah. That particular plant that's, that does that is, it's a weed and it's ubiquitous and it will come back. It's pretty tenacious too. <laughs> that's good. Cause those things, for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, this plant just somehow it, I think it's almost like a straw and the moisture comes up through that straw and like any kind of icicle, it, it forms itself through freezing and, you know, new liquid freezes on already frozen ice. And then it just shapes into these unbelievable looking ice sculptures. And some of them, they really look like flowers. Yeah, they're just, they're unbelievable. 
Regina has been able to capture a number of them that just absolutely mind-boggling. You couldn't create that outside of nature. No. no. So, I mean, we've talked about the fishing, we talk about the turkeys. You know, I came down here sight unseen and hunted for deer, and I'm a pretty serious deer hunter. So to give up on kind of those northern agriculture bucks, the big antlered North Missouri, Iowa border bucks, and come down here and do this mountain hunting, you know that you're there's a trade-off. Like You're likely not going to kill Boone and Crockett buck down here. But, man, I was really surprised at how many good bucks there are down here. And uh, I killed a nice eight-pointer with my bow, a nice eight-pointer with my gun. So the deer hunting's great. You don't, you don't see nearly as many deer as they travel through the mountains and hills and such, but because they're not congregating to a, an ag field. But the excitement of being two miles deep into a forest and having a deer come through that may have never seen a person before, that's a new element to it. And then there's the elk restoration that's going on over at Current River Conservation Area in Peck Ranch. The wild horses. Oh, yeah. you can When you go over to Echo Bluffs, you can see the wild horses just right there from the parking lot. Yeah. Sometimes. The trail Crazy. rides that go on, the, the ATVing that goes on, you know, where it's supposed to go on. Yeah, where yeah. it's supposed to go. We this. want to make sure we, you know, keep that where it's supposed to be. But there's plenty of opportunities to ride oh, yeah. ATVs. And I don't know, man. It's just I'm pretty jealous that you get to spend every day down here now. Oh, I like, tell you what. It's hard for me to turn around and head north. You know, it's hard for me to leave my my little piece of land. Yeah, I've learned not to invite you to things Head anymore. up the road. Yeah, I, I generally won't show. <laughs> I have some excuse. <laughs> I have to stay on my front porch and look down my valley. One thing you did show for, and I'm grateful to you for doing it, was helping us film the Spence Turner A Life Well Cast oh, yeah. movie. And boy, Great did man. that turn out really well. That was an amazing video. Yeah, anybody that hasn't seen A Life Well Cast, go on the Conservation Federation website, just confedmo.org, and spend the 14 minutes to watch that film because it really, really shines a light on the legacy of a, a great Missourian. Spence Turner was a trout biologist that had a lot to do with figuring out how to make trout thrive in a natural environment, you know, where we're not stocking them in the parks every day, but actually getting some regeneration, some of the more Western streams like the North Fork and the 11 Point and even here on the Upper Current. But you knew Spence long before I was privileged to start calling him a friend. What were the early days of Spence Turner and trout fishing? Well, I'll tell you what, Spence is way more than just trout, too. He was a, an accomplished fisheries biologist and a legend in his time because of the trout, but also for a lot of the other work he did in, in studies on mortality of, of fly fishing versus bait fishing, just all kinds of things. But I, my first experience with Spence, I'll never forget as long as I live, we had met because of the stream team program. And at some point, I had told him that I'd heard about electrofishing when they do the sampling, and I would really like to see how that's done. So one evening, late in the afternoon, he called me up and said, are you, are you up for an evening trip to go electroshock shocking on the Gasconade? I said, sure, you know, I've been wanting to do this. So we get there, and it's pitch dark outside. And he gets a, a light going on a boat and a generator. And they have these big, long arms that go out with these electrodes that go down in the water. And they've got a railing in the front to you stand, lean up against with a, a long-handled net and he was looking for any species of sunfish, which would be bass, 
and, and green sunfish and smallmouth or largemouth bass. Anyhow, after a while, you get to key in on a specific color. And so I'm all excited about this opportunity. I'm out there, I'm netting fish, putting them in a tank behind me on this boat with this loud motor running, generator running. And all of a sudden, out from under a log comes this thing that looked like the Loch Ness Monster. I had never seen one before, and it was an American eel. And it was about the size of my arm and had his mouth wide open with rows of teeth scared me to death and we're wearing these headsets with little microphones and and recording it and i'm sure that i had all kinds of colorful things to say about this loch ness monster all spence could say was net it so i did and i threw it in the tank and i wondered why in the world would he want this crazy looking thing in there but i netted it later on that evening we pulled over to the bank to sort through the fish measure take data and write down, you know, the sizes and everything in different species. And uh, I started asking why he wanted me to net that, that eel. And he said, well, just hang on. You'll see. We had a young intern that was pulling the fish out of the tank and she was struggling with trying to catch just one fish. Well, if you've ever grabbed a hold of an eel, you can see why she was struggling. They're slippery. And hence the old expression, slippery as an eel. Well, she finally got her hands on this thing, thinking all along it's a fish, pulls it up out of the water, and realizes it's a scary thing, <laughs> lots of teeth, screams bloody murder, throws it straight up in the air, and it lands in the river. Of course, Spence is dying laughing. So he's got a great sense of humor, but now his intern didn't think so. I thought it was funny. That was my first experience. We went back on the water, and a mayfly hatch started. as a white mayfly hatch. Now, this is at night in the dark, and this white mayfly hatch was attracted to those lights. You had mayflies in your nostrils, in your ears, in your mouth. I've never seen a hatch like that. And I discovered that the big hatches come out on Missouri rivers at night. Ruby Doo's the same way. There's where your big hatches come off. Like the hex hatch of like Michigan. Like the hex hatch in Michigan. You ever fished that? I have, actually. And I fished it uh, in Wisconsin as well. But also in Missouri, we have a white mayfly hatch that comes off on the Merrimack in the trout water, uh, just like it did on the Gasconade that night, called the white fly hatch. You tie your, your white mayfly just generic. You don't worry about putting wings on it. You just got a tail, white body, and a white hackle on the front. And fairly good size. We're talking 12, size 10s and 12s. Those are big fly. And you you get to the stream. It's in the second week in September usually. You get to the stream. You get down on the water. And you start fishing before dark. You don't really get a lot of activity until the sun goes down. And then the hatch really comes on strong, and the big fish start, those nocturnal feeders start coming out. So you think it's comparable, similar to that? Very similar to that. And all you do is you you cast out, and by starting a little bit before dark, you get an idea of the flow, because you're not going to see your fly in the dark. And you cast out, and you kind of imagine in your mind the speed at which it's going. If you hear a slurp where you think your fly might be, you set the hook. And chances are you've got a nice big brown or a big rainbow on the other end. Unbelievable experience. And I had no idea till that night on the Gasconade with Spence, and then he proceeded to explain to me that this was common in a lot of our Missouri streams. Did you guys get to fish together much? We did. We we fished together frequently. He and, and another friend of ours, uh, Chuck Tryon, who's also passed, 
Chuck and Spence were good friends, and we fished together quite frequently. But I think Spence's most famous companion was Joel Vance. Yeah. And when Joel Vance and Spence Turner got together, it was uh, Murphy's Law at its finest. Always something, some strange encounter. I remember one time Spence and Joel and a bunch of us were fishing at a bass lake, and it was for an outdoor riders group. And they paired those two up in the same boat. Big mistake. They weren't out five minutes till the boat filled up with water and nearly sank. <laughs> they get back to the dock, barely limping in, and they're standing there looking at this boat half submerged in the water when some young man comes down and says, are you Spencer Turner? He says, yeah. He says, oh, man, I've really been wanting to meet you. Can you help me with my casting, with my fly rod? I, I've been having some trouble. And Spence says, well, you know, I don't have anything else to do. Sure, I'll help you. And uh, the young man made a couple false casts, and the first thing he does is he hooks Spence in the back of the neck <laughs> with, with his hook. Now, the hook still has a barb on it, and it's buried. <laughs> I was with Spence when we were we were doing a Gabion on Spring Creek, a little trout stream in Phelps County. And he was trying to tighten the, the Gabion wire over this, this bunch of rocks and using a shovel handle. And as he used it as a lever to pull toward him, the shovel handle broke and he split his forehead wide open. Fortunately, one of the other people that were with us was a kidney specialist who happened to have some sutures with him. <laughs> And somebody had a bottle of Jack Daniels. They poured it over his wound. The guy stitched him up on the tailgate of his pickup truck. And we went right back to putting rocks in a gabion. Every other rock that came through had blood on it from Spence's forehead. And we named it, uh, we dubbed it the blood hole after that. Well, I think Jim Lowe uh, nicknamed Spence Iron Man and Waiters. (laughs) Yeah, I can can see where the name might come from. What a good name. For a yeah. guy like him, yeah. Joel's still kicking, and uh, I need oh, to yeah. get over there and do one of these podcasts with him. He can tell you some special oh, stories. There's just so many legends of that era yeah. from the Department of Conservation. You know, saw Bill Crawford the other night. You know, Bill's 98 oh, now, yeah. and still kicking. Just so many of those guys: Tom Russell and Norm Stuckey, and just a number of incredible old yeah, all legends in conservation yeah dave graber all these wildlife chiefs and how fortunate am i that so many of them gravitate toward cfm yeah. upon retirement and we get i think we get the greatest people at their greatest moment you know they've got all the knowledge now they've got some time and they've really honed down what they're concerned with and what they want to do in their remaining years to make an impact on missouri and and they see the federation as the place to do it you know it's a humbling experience to have somebody of that stature come and say you know i want to volunteer my time to work with you and and make sure we can continue moving this state in the right direction. And what an so, honor to have those people. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, you never take it lightly. And then you remember every day that they're volunteering their time and they're volunteering their expertise. And it's just a wealth of of knowledge and history as well. And you're kind of entering into that into that era. The, this, the old in history. Yeah, <laughs> you're like this historian now living down here in Feathercutter, Feathercutter Farms. And yeah. Passing it on, fly fishing's your thing, and you're you're teaching folks and doing the classes and really the man about the current river. Well, I tell you what, there's a lot for me to learn down here. You know, I fished this current river since I was about 12 years old, but not every day. And now that I'm down here, I'm seeing that this river has its own little idiosyncrasies, and you have to learn it. You know, so 
it's an everyday learning experience and I'll probably be learning it for the rest of my life. But every day that I'm on that water is a wonderful time. There's some brutes in there too. Oh my gosh. I remember floating so many times uh, in, in over the times I fished that river, floating over a big hole of water and, and just kind of looking down as I go by a big boulder and seeing an old resident or trout in there that I know had to go 15 pounds. I'm thinking, my gosh, yeah, how long have you been in this river, buddy? <laughs> and why can't I catch <laughs> and you? And why can't you take my fly? <laughs> yeah, right. In retirement, is there any bucket list in the works? I mean, do you have some trips you got to take. Give me one place outside of Missouri you fished before that you want to go back to and one place that you've never been, but you got to get to. Well, the one place I fished before that I really would like to get back to was the Encampment River in Wyoming, the wilderness. Regina and I backpacked that wilderness uh, on the, on the uh, Encampment River back 2000 or so and what an amazing experience we were out in the middle of nowhere no other people all we saw were mountain goats and and eagles and caught beautiful fish on that river it was like walking on greased bowling balls wading up and down that stream because it's all just big round boulders but it was just an amazing experience I have fished western rivers all over the West, but that one for some reason really captured my attention, and I'd like to go back sometime. And then as far as places I've never been but always wanted to go is uh, New Zealand. However, there's a serious problem there. I don't fly anymore. And until they build a bridge from here to New Zealand where I can drive there, I probably won't make it. Well, or they'll have to knock me out. And I'll, I'll, I'll take pictures there. when I finally get there. Yeah, right there you go. For you. I've always dreamed of fishing New Zealand, the uh, big browns. Oh my gosh, and those so, rivers. So if I'm going to answer my own question that I just posed to you, I'm, I'm going to say Yellowstone for both. I've oh, fished yeah. there before, but I've never fished it the way I wanted to fish it. You know, when I was living in Montana, I feel like I was always being a tour guide, you know, I feel like they should have gave me a hat yeah. so I could drive people through and show them old faithful and, you know, maybe stop and fish for an hour or two. And, but I've never gone there for the purpose of fishing. So I would love to take, you know, a 10 day trip to Yellowstone, maybe Yellowstone country, pull my raft, of course, float the Madison, the Yellowstone, but really focus on hitting. Yeah, don't forget the, the small ones. Yeah, hitting Lamar, you yeah, know, and catching some native. Creek and Slough and, Creek. Uh, the fire hole. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I really want to get back to Yellowstone and do it right. And the Gallatin. Yep. The Gallatin could be I, amazing. You know, I fished the Gallatin quite a bit, and, you know, you got the three forks. So yeah. people don't maybe realize that the three forks that form the Missouri River are the Madison, the Gallatin, and the Jefferson. And for me, the Madison just fishes so much greater than the other two. Well, and I have to agree. My first experience on the Madison was – one after another football-shaped rainbow trout that was just unbelievable on small serendipity flies. My first first one I caught, I was with a buddy who'd been pre-fishing and, and got me there. You know, he said, this is where we need to go. So we went, and uh, I hooked this fish. And it was like hooking onto the back bumper of a <laughs> truck. This thing took off, and, and I'm standing there with my rod in my hand, my reel screaming, and he goes, you need to run with it. And I thought he meant let the fish run. And I said, well, I'm letting him run. He goes, no, you need to run. 
Because the fish will strip every bit of your line, and it would have had I not taken off down the river. An amazing experience. I just have this propensity to small towns, like smaller. West Yellowstone. Yeah, for me, it's Ennis. Like, I I just love Ennis, Montana. I mean, you know, the day comes where I have too much money and don't know what to do with it. Like, I'll buy a place in Ennis because it's just this super quaint, cool little town Right on the Madison River, you're an hour out of Bozeman. That, that's another stipulation. I like small towns with proximity to you know more cultural hubs. Right. So that's why I live close to Fayette and near Columbia. Right, we can get to Columbia, but then I can retreat back to my my rural lifestyle within a half an hour. Eminence, Missouri, is is just another one of those places. Oh, like I've fallen in love. Isn't it a great little town with Eminence? I, I wish it had a little sporting goods store or fly shop. I wish it would support that throughout the season i think it could have an amazing little you, you know, know and store, i'm really surprised that it doesn't yeah you know what you've got the proximity to the current the 11 point the jack's fork i think they get the party floaters and they get you know really strong support from the equestrian crowd but right, right. you know it's back to what we were talking about it's just overlooked you know you got that small shop now in salem but there should just be a cool like old school stamp tin ceiling sporting goods store yeah. in eminence that sells you know archery equipment firearms equipment fly fishing clothing if anybody's looking for a business opportunity that would be a place that'd be a place to do yeah. it well i think we're closing in on an hour thank you for taking the time to sit down with me coming out of your holler hey i tell you what it's been a great great time brandon i appreciate the opportunity to talk fly fishing stream team anything conservation talking about good friends like spencer who passed on and remembering him what a great man you know and i'm so so proud of what you guys did with that video to to honor him uh, he was so deserving. Well, it was a really cool experience to get him involved in in the idea of making this film about him. I think it gave him a little bit of a, a light at the end of his lifetime, you know, yeah. something that he was enjoying. And just to know that those of us who looked up to him are going to continue to tell his story and try to carry on what he started. You know, I so really owed Spence my career in conservation. And I've not told many people this, but I was in the in the private sector in retail sales when I started that stream team thing. When they offered the position for a stream team coordinator, I wanted to apply for it. And Spencer called me and said, have you ever applied for a state job before? I said, no. He said, it's not anything like you going in trying to get a job as a car salesman. He said, it's a whole different thing. I'm going to be down in that area doing some Creel surveys. I'll be staying at XYZ Hotel. And when I get off work in the evening, come by and let me show you how to interview for a state job. I said, okay, and I'm thinking, yeah, 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 I can do this. I'll never forget the first question he asked me. I had no idea how to answer, so I just started answering. He said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. He said, you can't BS these people. (laughs) And that's exactly what you're doing. He said, let's back up and talk about this again. He trained me in a proper interview process, and I got the job. I don't think I would have gotten it without his help. That's one of the things that made him 
so special, his ability to communicate. You know, you have a biologist who's not only this incredible scientist, but also a, a leading communicator in the country. President, and of, just a good guy. President of the Outdoor Riders Association of America, right. and you know, longtime columnist, and yeah, just a great personality. And, and so. a very patient individual. So put up with me for that <laughs> through that uh, process. Spence is the best. Yeah. So to close out, tell people how to get a hold of you and what you're offering as far as services these days. Well, I'm, I've got a number of classes lined up with with the lodge, and if you go to my face. Facebook page, Mark Van Patten Facebook page, or Feathercutter Farm School of Fly Fishing Facebook page. You'll see the dates and so on listed for the classes here at the park. I've also got a class coming up, I believe on the 28th of this month, at Jay Cook in Salem in the evening. It's a weekday evening class, and the ones here at Montauk are always on a Saturday, with the exception of twice a year, and it is on... Um, April 21 through 23 and September 22 through 24, we're going to do a three-day fly fishing, fly tying, a comprehensive fly fishing course that where you will start on Friday evening, we'll go all day Saturday and a half a day on Sunday, and you'll learn everything from equipment and fishing to fly tying, and then we'll actually get out there and do a lot of fishing as well. Be a great class. I call it fly fishing A to Z. You learn it all in those three days. And with that information, you can take that back with you and really develop in this sport. In the meantime, our first fly tying class here at the lodge is the 25th of this month. It starts at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning on Saturday the 25th and ends at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The lodge is providing lunch, comes with the, the class, and everything's provided. As far as equipment and materials, all you need to do is bring yourself and an interest in learning to tie flies. Well, for those of you that are going to listen to this after that date, just know that that's an example of things that are to come in the future as well. So, Yeah, and there'll be one a month every month from now till October. So, so there it is. That's Missouri's living legend of fly fishing, Mark Van Patten. If you want to learn how to fly fish, if you want to learn how to tie flies, or if you just want to get better at either one of them, look them up on Facebook, just Mark Van Patten or Feathercutter Farm. Yeah, and, and or you can email me at feathercutterfarm at gmail.com. All right, Mark. Thanks a lot. You bet.